Hello, everyone. This is Austin Roberts, and you are listening to the EcoCiv Podcast, a production of the Institute for Ecological Civilization. At EcoCiv, we are working internationally to support systemic approaches to long-term sustainability by developing collaborations among government, business, and religious leaders, and among scholars, activists, and policymakers. This podcast provides a glimpse into the kinds of projects and conversations that we take part in on a regular basis. You can check out our website at ecociv.org for more information, including a list of upcoming events, news, videos, and more. If you enjoy this podcast, you can help support the work that we are doing at Ecociv by making a donation at our website. For this week's episode, Ecociv's Executive Vice President Andrew Schwartz was able to talk with Dr. John B. Cobb Jr., who is an environmentalist, philosopher, and theologian. Almost 94 years old, John's work has been influential across a range of disciplines, including theology, economics, ecology, biology, and social ethics. He is the author of more than 50 books, including For the Common Good, co-authored with economist Herman Daly, The Liberation of Life, which he co-authored with biologist Charles Birch, and Is It Too Late?, which was the first single-author book in environmental ethics. Andrew asks him about the notion of ecological civilization, ecological economics, Pope Francis, integral ecology, process philosophy, what gives him hope, and many other topics. And now, Andrew and John. So I'm here with Dr. John B. Cobb, Jr., um, and we are going to begin. So, John, you are identified with this new concept of an ecological civilization, um, and this is something that you describe as an alternative to the modern industrial age. So what exactly is an ecological civilization, and what are its distinctive characteristics? Well, since there isn't one at present... What we are talking about is giving a name to what we would like to see take the place of what we now have. And uh, the most urgent reason for replacing what we now have is that what we now have is simply not sustainable and is leading us to catastrophe. So we will either either plunge into real catastrophes, I think they're already beginning, or we will at least move to something that is sustainable. Now, we could just talk about a sustainable society, that's what we did in the early 70s, but the word sustainable is not as communicative or as rich as we would like, it can be used to sustain all kinds of things that we don't like. So it seems better to give a term that has a little bit more descriptive significance. And uh, these days we have come to realize that the natural world is an ecology and that when it is not disturbed by us, An ecology not only is sustainable, but it tends to become more complex and to develop creatures with higher degrees of sensitivity and sensibility, 
so that it has become a very positive word, legitimately so, and it is the fact that civilizations have disturbed ecologies that has caused them to become unsustainable. So to say that we want an ecological civilization means we want one that fits into the natural uh, environment, which is an ecology, and that itself has many of the characteristics that ecologies have. Now, of course, working all of that out in detail is a vast job which is only barely begun, but we can talk about that if you like. So who are some of the people providing leadership um, that you think exemplify this this move to an alternative form of civilization? Um, and how do you see this transition even beginning now? Well, the, the term comes to us from China. It, I think, originated in some UN documents. And... Um, Although China makes no pretense of now being an ecological civilization, it is the only country that has committed itself to working in that direction. So I suppose the leader would be perhaps the president of China or people in the Chinese government who are taking leadership. But many different aspects of it of an ecological civilization are being pioneered and developed partly in imagination and to some extent in actualization. In many places, uh, I'm very impressed by the kind of work that Mary Evelyn Tucker, for example, has been doing for a long time. And... Um, there are individuals who have been working to give leadership, for example, in the field of agriculture or in the field of urban planning or in the field of education. And we could talk about people who've worked in those individual areas. I'm very happy that right now David Corton is fully on board and he's given leadership in the past, especially in economic and business matters, but he has the whole range of interest in, in his view. You've just mentioned a bunch of different sectors, education and politics. You know, you can talk about agriculture and talk about economics. Um, you had a recent book come out titled Putting Philosophy to Work Toward an Ecological Civilization, an edited volume. Um, what role do you think uh, ideas have? Uh, you know, how can changing our thinking actually change the world in order to address you know, real problems? Well, if we don't change our thinking, we certainly are not going to change, change the world. Our, the economics is so important in our world. I would say it's the dominant factor in determining events in the industrial world. And it is doing a great deal of damage. And this is because in its fundamental theory, it understands us all to be individuals who are seeking our own maximum economic advantage. 
and uh, it has therefore no place for community and no place for people acting in terms of long-term concerns for the well-being of the planet. And as long as we think in the way in which economists teach us to think and encourage us to think, uh, there's, we don't have any hope at all. Now, you're known as a strong critic of our current economic system. Um, you're well known for your work with Herman Daly on ecological economics. But what exactly about our current economic system needs to change in order to create a world that works for all? Well, one rather obvious matter is that there is no attention in economic theory to the health of, of either human communities or ecological systems. And if human communities become sick, and they can be sick even if they have lots of money, or if the environmental system, the, the, envi- the ec- ecological system in which we operate ceases to function, it's obvious that things will collapse in really terrible ways. Now you've, um, I believe in your book with, with Daly, um, proposed an alternative indicator or measure for uh, success, uh, economic success beyond GDP. Can you say a little about that? Yes, uh, it's unfortunate that GDP has become the measure that is used by most countries. Surely what we want is the economic well-being of the people. GDP is not a measure of the economic well-being of the people. It is simply a measure of what goes through the market. Simply increasing activity in the market is thought by most economists to be an inherently good thing. And if we think of very simple examples, we can see why. Because if two people make an exchange, normally they do so because both of them want to. And if both of them get what they want out of the exchange, then the exchange is a good thing. However, in the real world, those exchanges do take place and they do, they do have an advantageous effect. But if they do not take account of their effect upon the wider society and the wider natural world, they may be rushing us toward total disaster. They, there are better measures available. It's uh, possible to, for example, introduce concerns for sustainability. The GDP as such tells us nothing whatsoever about sustainability. So, for example, the island of Borneo is in the process of total deforestation. Now, while you're cutting down the trees and selling the lumber, lots of of value is transmitted, and it will the GDP will be greatly improved. And when the people who used to make their living from the forest with very little involvement in the marketplace now can no longer do that and have to work for the palm olive plantations that are likely to take the place of the forest, 
they will be adding to GDP, but many of them may have lived better when they were not adding to the GDP than they do now when they have to work for a company that expects very specific things and will probably hire them at the lowest possible rate that they can get by with. The loss of the forests and all of the services that the forest has contributed to people. In fact, the forest is an organ of creating oxygen, which is going to be very ba badly needed as, as the planet becomes deforested. There's so many things that are not considered in the GDP that are even more important than what is considered the GDP. Now, it is possible to develop measures that take account of all of that. And the genuine progress indicator is today probably the measure that has been kept up best over the longest period of time and can demonstrate the fact that economic well-being was at a much higher point in the United States, for example, several decades ago than it is now. GDP has gone up, up, up. We trade more and more. But that doesn't make us better off. We're actually declining. So if nations would really set their sights on improving by a measure that measured actual improvement, we would all be much better off than when we continue to strive to improve by a measure that doesn't take any of the important factors into consideration. Now, it sounds like what you're saying is that um, you're calling for a shift in, in fundamental values, ways of thinking, right? When we talk about um, GDP, GDP as a measure, we're, we're talking about a, a, a system for evaluating well-being, uh, whether it be economic well-being or, or other. Um, but what what sorts of values do you think should ground um, our new civilization, should be our, our new measures of success? Well, number one would be that uh, human communities would function in ways that are supportive of the individuals who make them up, and the people in those communities should participate in making the decisions that shape their lives. Number two, we would act in such a way that our children would have a better chance of, of a good life than we have had, that we would actually be regenerating the world rather than continuing to deplete it of things that our, de our descendants will badly need. We could go on from that, of course, and specify many things we have we want to have individual rights. We don't want to be discriminated against because of our sexual orientation or gender or race or anything of that sort. Many of the values that are articulated today are, are good values and need to be continued. But we're not measuring according to our own judgment of values at the present time. Now, it sounds like you're you're talking about um, this this notion of ecological civilization. 
really being at the intersection of both uh, environmental and social issues. It's not just about human relations to the natural environment, but also human relations to other humans. Um, is, is that what you're suggesting? Oh, absolutely. The idea that we could continue to treat human beings the way we now treat them and then still have a good relationship with the natural world, it just won't. It won't work. But equally, the idea that we can ignore the natural world and just improve human relationships with each other, that absolutely is self-destructive. This sharp distinction between the natural world and human beings, when human beings are very much a part of the natural world, has misled us in very fundamental ways. I think... 50 years ago, that was a radical point. It needed to be focused on. Today, most people know that. They may not know it in such a way as to change their behavior, but we do know it. So it's time to stop worrying about whether we are primarily interested in nature or human beings and recognize that we are part of nature. And we are part of nature that at least we don't want to see destroyed. The the Pope's language of integral ecology is very good in this respect. It means that human beings are integral to the ecological system. And for any part of the ecological system to destroy the rest of it is to destroy itself as well. Now, you mentioned Pope Francis in this encyclical Laudato Si in the notion of integral ecology. Um, and of course, you know, in that document, there's this recognition that um, our, we're not facing two separate crises, one environmental, one social, but a single complex crisis that's both social and environmental. And I hear you saying the same thing. So what are some of the, the similarities, but also some of the differences you see between this notion of ecological civilization and this notion of integral ecology? Well, the similarities are easy to point out, and you have just pointed out. Uh, I think that they actually, in, in the context of the encyclical, I would say that it's virtually identical. I don't know. Both of them are vague and indeterminate, so it might be in the process of working them out some differences will appear. The question is, which is a better term? I have thought that it's important that we emphasize civilization and say that it is the entire civilization that must change. One reason I want to emphasize civilization is because civilization as such has always been destructive of the environment, and destructive specifically of its ecological character. And so by emphasizing that we want a civilization, we are saying this is a very radical shift indeed. But if you just say integral ecology and make the ecology the inclusive term, uh, that, that could be a danger. I'm not saying that there is in the Pope's encyclical, 
but there could be a danger that one thought human beings needed to fit simply into the way in which nature operates. Now, nature operates a great deal by predation, for example. And uh, at, there was a time when our ancestors were, of course, killing other animals, but they were also being killed by other animals. Today, the if you simply leave things up to the natural system, we would stop trying to extend the length of life in the way we now are. I think that we human beings do have specific needs, specific values, and we are going to continue to work for some things that are not the same as the, th as the rules by which the rest of the world lives. Now, you are, are globally known as a leader in process philosophy uh, related to Alfred North Whitehead, Charles Hartshorn, and thinkers like mm -hmm. this, um, which I understand, you know, notions of relationality, interconnection, the common good, these, these are centerpieces of your philosophy. So how do these principles influence the way that you envision the relationship of the individual and the community in this future society of an ecological civilization? Well, I think your question has in part answered itself. The, um, the things that are so wrong with our civilization are consistent with a mechanistic and materialistic and economistic worldview. And these, are, these have dominated the past few centuries. And they have roots still even more deeply in the Western philosophical tradition. So uh, we, need to, we need to go to the roots of the matter. And um, if it is the case, as I believe, that the notion of substance leads us to misunderstand the nature of the world, then we need an alternative to substance in our philosophy. Uh, how does it lead to misunderstanding? Well, uh, a very common adage is no two substances can occupy the same space at the same time. It means that between actual things, there are only external relationships. But in fact, if we, if we ask what's going on in the world, the integration of things is much more radical than can be explained or thought of in terms of external relations. The alternative is to think of events as being primary. And in fact, sciences, the, the physical sciences are moving more and more away from thinking that there are isolable individual objects external to each other and recognizing that what happens uh, involve fields and involve the interconnection of things in terms of their very constitution. Whitehead gives us a very rich and clear way of understanding that. And uh, therefore, those of us who followed Whitehead well, uh, had the advantage over those who were still following 
Cartesian and Kantian ways of thought. We didn't have to struggle against the implications of our philosophy in order to deal with the relationality of things. So Whitehead's philosophy saw problems with the dominant philosophy of the West before the ecological problem showed that the consequences of those mistakes were terrible indeed. Can you say a little about the this modern like worldview, this modern uh, philosophy, and how that actually leads to the kind of crisis we're talking about now? Okay. Well, the modern philosophy is usually thought to begin with Descartes, and modern science, to a large extent, also begins with Descartes. And what Descartes wanted to do was to give human beings complete freedom over nature and recognize that, there's a sh that human beings are themselves not part of nature. Now, this uh, separation of human beings from nature is simply false, and evolutionary theory has shown that it's false, but it's Kant rescued it for practical purposes, so we have continued thinking that the human is one thing and the natural another. When we think that way, then nature is understood purely as resource, something for us to manage and control for our distinctively human purposes. And when we treat nature that way, nature will no longer be able to provide the context for human life. So it's a very serious distortion of reality, which leads to a distortion of behavior which all has an enormous backlash against us. Do you think that um, something like the green GDP just reinforces that perspective and the commodification of nature, or does that move us closer to an ecological civilization? Well, whenever we take account of nature, to whatever extent we take account of nature, it's better than not taking account of nature. So I would say... It can move us, but if it does not uh, challenge the, uh, the resource orientation, if I, th I think different things are happening under, under the heading of a green GDP, but if it simply means that we now pay attention to maintaining our resources, that is going to help but not prevent the crises that lie in wait for us. We, we need to look at the whole natural system, including human beings, in its unity and see how the whole thing can be made healthy. And that is possible, but it takes a more radical shift away from the anthropocentrism of the past. We want to shift away from anthropocentrism without in any way devaluing human beings. Yeah, that's really helpful. This, I mean, what I hear you calling for is, is not just a, a change in the way that we um, act toward one another or the environment, but a really deep fundamental shift, a paradigm shift um, in the sort of 
the way that we understand ourselves and the world and then the the very systems that we create um, to carry out that understanding. So this is a pretty, I, I feel like this could be overwhelming for people. Um, <laughs> we're, we're not talking about, you know, some inter- incremental changes or minor changes addressing the symptoms, which are very serious symptoms of our you know, of climate change and uh, inequality and other sorts of things. But we're talking about a more radical fundamental shift. Um, Where do we begin? Well, unfortunately, many things have been happening which have led to a lot of people already making the move. Probably the largest movement that is really promising in this direction is the feminist movement. Because feminists have associated patriarchy with many of these things that we need to overcome. And they often put a huge emphasis on relationality. And they really mean by relationality what are called internal relations. They're not just saying we need more external relations. So without having studied deeply all the philosophical features, their own understanding of reality has is expressing itself in many of the changes that are needed. There's also a much greater appreciation of indigenous thought, a much greater appreciation of East Asian thought, and uh, lots of people have already been influenced by these matters. Among people who have studied ecology, I think most of them have in fact given up the purely external notions of relations and are already moving a long way. So we don't have to create this change out of nothing. The great obstacle is the teaching that have become the standard teaching and still shape our educational system. From my point of view, the university is the last holdout against common sense and against the worldview that we need. And if you get outside the university and just into, um, say, the ideas that young people are much more likely to associate with, you're already at least halfway, but maybe more than halfway to what we need. If nobody in the world were now thinking in the in a holistic way, I'd be really troubled. But there are a lot of people in agriculture who are thinking holistically. There are a lot of people concerned with human health who are thinking holistically. There are a lot of people concerned with gender issues that are thinking holistically. It will help all of them to know that there is a rigorously developed philosophy that shows that this holistic thinking fits the actual state of scientific knowledge as well as developing a perspective that undergirds the change in political changes that that we need. But vastly improved thinking is already struggling hard against the dominant system. I'm glad you brought up education because, you know, as a retired professor with more than, what, 50 years of experience um, in education, I mean, you've really devoted your life 
to uh, to education, higher education. Um, so then, but then I hear you criticizing our our systems of education, our universities, as being a part of the problem, not the solution. So, so what are some of your thoughts on the role of education? Um, what needs to change in education in order to to it to be a, an effective platform in bringing about um, systems change on a global scale? Well, if we go back to the whole history of education, we will see that education arose in urban centers and to meet the needs of urban civilization, and that education for farmers or education for the countryside has been extremely little, very, very little. When we move education to the countryside, it was still teaching them how to live in cities and encouraging them to rural people to move to cities. So it, we can see that uh, schooling, I shouldn't say education, there's always been education, everybody has education, but formal schooling, which is what I think we really are talking about now, has always been focused upon a civilization that is itself not sustainable since all, no civilization to date has been sustainable. So we need to rethink education in a very fundamental way. However, we can identify the particularly bad features of the contemporary university education as having, as resulting from much more recent situations. There were people who rightly recognized back in, say, the early 19th century that our educational systems were not preparing people to do research for the industrial system. And they thought that a very important need of humanity is to de develop greater skill in advancing knowledge and information, developing new techniques, technologies, and so forth. The University of Berlin was sometimes called the first modern university, and it understood itself to be preparing people to do research. Now, from my point of view, there's nothing wrong with preparing one small segment of our best and brightest people to do research. But we don't need to have 100% of our educational system devoted to preparing people for research. Now, I question that the present educational system is actually the best for preparing people to do research. It, it does very well for very conventional research because it identifies narrow fields in which people can really learn all there is to be, all the facts that need to be learned, set aside anything that might distract or confuse, and then show how one can make advances. It really does that well, and I don't mean to be belittling that. But in a world in which everything is related to everything else, the habit of separating things blocks much of the needed research. In any case, most people don't need to devote their lives 
to doing research. We would like for them to think more clearly. We would like for them to understand the world better. We would like for them to love one another more. We would like for them to enjoy life more. There are many things we would like to improve. And schools can do all of those things. The, uh, in the United States, when I was young, liberal arts college was the norm, n normal and normative form of higher education. And the liberal art is designed at least to help the individuals who are studying to enjoy life more, to appreciate the culture that they receive from others, to prepare themselves to be leaders in society, and so forth. Now that makes much more sense for a large number of people than just learning to do research. But during the years after World War II, the academic disciplines designed for research displaced the liberal arts designed for good living and cultural development and so forth. And they did so very rapidly. And that, to me, is encouraging because if things could change from liberal arts to academic disciplines rapidly, they might change from academic disciplines to preparing people for an ecological civilization with equal speed, and speed is needed. So we're talking about really big ideas um, and trying to bring these big ideas down to earth. Um, but when we talk about, you know, changing our economic systems, changing our educational systems, our political, agricultural, and other systems, what, 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 I mean, what can an individual person do? Um, you know, if somebody's listening to this right now and they're wondering, wow, I really like the idea of an ecological civilization, but I can't change the world and I can't change these, you know, global capitalism on my own. What can I do? What would you say? Well, one of the things that I've been trying to emphasize for a long time is that no one person can create ecological civilization, but that in this country already millions of people are moving things in that, in that direction. Uh, all these movements for the inclusiveness in relationship to people of diverse genders and uh, sexual orientations and all of this are paving the way for ecological civilization. You can still do that. People who care a lot about producing food in a healthy way, they are working for an ecological civilization. People who are working for better child care are working for an ecological civilization. We could go on and on. Uh, there are people working in the field of technology who are making changes in technology that improve our chances of getting to an ecological civilization. So most people who have, who have found a, a line of work that they themselves think is helping people and helping the world are already working for ecological civilization. What my hope is that is that uh, they will recognize that what they're doing 
let's say, somebody who is really concerned about the destruction of, the eradication of so many species, what that person is doing and what somebody else who is trying to reduce the gap in wealth between the extremely rich and the extremely poor, they're both working for ecological civilization. They both need to, to know to support each other. What our opponents have done is to fragment us so that people think, well, that's none of my business. They'll have to, other people will have to work on that. And of course that's true. You can't work on everything. But if you understand that what you're doing is working toward ecological civilization and that lots of other people in lots of other ways are doing this, also working for it, then we can be, become a powerful political voice and we can make changes. Otherwise, we're all dismissed as special interest people. So what are some of the important questions that we're not asking? Um, things that you think are key to this uh, shift, this transition to an ecological civilization? Well, one of the things that we are not asking is what changes we can make right away. The, um, the depth of the control of the idea that increasing GDP is the most important thing for a country to do it is not being systematically and regularly challenged. It can easily be challenged. You don't have to change any basic assumptions in order to challenge it. What you do have to say, change, is the willingness of the great majority of people to be exploited by the few. As long as we are pushing GDP, we are supporting corp international corporations, transnational corporations. They're the people who gain. But why should all of us what, not even consider the fact that maybe we would all like to have our economic condition improved and that simple changes would make it happen? I, I think it's really astounding. I, I understand why it's done and how it's done. The people who profit from the present system control the media and the educational system and to get people to really do a little bit of study on their own and think independently about matters when they can just read the paper and have their opinions shaped for them. That seems to be hard. I'm, I haven't given up on people, though. I think there are lots of people who don't need a lot of help in order to understand that the way they vote is supporting the wrong things. Whichever political party they vote for, they're supporting the, the wrong things. I don't mean that there are some right things that both political parties support, I don't mean to make so sweeping a statement. But both political parties have uh, uh, living and thinking and operating out of false assumptions. And they are both committed to working 
for the financial sector and for the transnational corporations rather than for the American people. Uh, I, I think simply understanding that will lead to change behavior and will lead to demands upon our representatives. So one thing anybody can do is just to call the attention of their friends and neighbors and other people to the way we are being exploited, but even worse than that, to the way we are exploiting the resources of the planet far beyond the ability of the planet to survive. So in this context of, I, th I think you've said that we're, you know, um, you know, we're at the end of an age um, that we had a, a recent report came out from the White House uh, before that, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. I mean, it's becoming increasingly clear that um, we are at the brink and we're, we're uh, at the tipping point of really um, major crisis uh, environmentally. And in the context of such, I guess, in, incredibly frightening, um, you know, consequences around the corner, what gives you hope in the midst of that? Well, uh, I, I think faith in God gives me hope. But that can so easily be misunderstood. What I believe is that there are, is a power working throughout the natural world and in every human heart for good. And every now and again that becomes very apparent as it somehow breaks through and, and things happen. It doesn't mean that there is some omnipotent external controller who simply won't let things go bad. But I'm afraid if I, if I didn't believe that there was something more in human beings than what most of us manifest most of the time, it would be very difficult to have, to have hope. But there are lots of good things that are happening. Um, there are hundreds of billions of people who really want to do the right thing and have some understanding of what that is. I believe that the, the worldview that has dominated the West for the past few hundred years is being undercut dramatically and that it, it simply doesn't have the capacity to project itself much longer. I think that lots of people are working in universities who just feel they have to take the present system of teaching and the present system of organizing thought and so forth for granted, who know it's not wise. And it wouldn't take much. In, in my view, if three major Catholic universities 
actually took Laudato Si seriously, as 40 of them promised to do right after Laudato Si came out, announced what they were doing and said, we are not going to continue to teach in a way that makes our education irrelevant to the needs of the world. We believe that schooling should be oriented to real human and global needs. And then worked hard to change their curriculum. Schools that said, oh, we're not going to be relevant to the needs of the world, we're just going to do this, would be a little embarrassed. I don't think it would take much. So much of what is happening now is so obviously absurd that I can't I can't believe it's impossible f for this whole thing to collapse, but to collapse into something that is much, much better. Because the better ideas are also all over the place. I think a great many students today would prefer to go to a college that was trying to prepare them for an ecological civilization than to go to a college that was preparing them for graduate school so that graduate school could turn them into zombies. I'm sorry, every now and again, <laughs> I allow my feelings <laughs> to control them. <laughs> but, but into people whose official views, whose explicit views are that they are zombies. That's what the university teaches now. And I, I just do not understand how major institutions can survive on such nonsense. But that there are people working um, to make those changes does give us hope. There are lots um, of people who are working, and there are lots of other people who will give them lots of support if they know how to, how to do that. So I think, I think our situation is ripe for ignition. And that, I mean, I don't know how to do it. I certainly haven't succeeded in doing it. But if people with the right rhetoric and the right knowledge of how to communicate and so forth are, are deeply converted to the recognition that it's time to act for the salvation of the world, things could change far more rapidly than we suppose. Well, thank you, Dr. Cobb, for your 50-plus years on working to save the world, um, you know, and for, you know, being, you're almost 94, and uh, I appreciate you sharing your wisdom with us uh, today. Um, certainly, if, uh, if we can all come together around this vision of an ecological civilization, uh, good things can happen. So, thank you. <laughs>